You are listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. I'm your host today, Vanessa Ferguson. Last year, UIS Innovate Springfield and the Community Foundation for the Land of Lincoln hosted a public event titled The Next Technology Revolution, which featured Springfield native and vice chairman for equity private markets at Jeffrey's Global Technology Investment Banking Group, Cully Davis. Davis has nearly 30 years of investment banking experience and worked with numerous businesses known for being on the cutting edge of technology, including Google, Groupon, Lyft, Box, Kite Pharma, MicroStrategy, and SunPower, to name a few. He received his MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and his bachelor's degree in English from Illinois Wesleyan University after graduating from Springfield High School. He is also the son of the late Professor Cullum Davis, a founding faculty member of Sagamon State University. At this event, Davis shared lessons he's learned in Silicon Valley and the elements needed to make Springfield the home of the next technology revolution. Let's listen in to this presentation. Here's Rob Kerr, Executive Director of Innovation and Opportunity at UIS. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. My name is Rob Kerr. I'm from University of Illinois Springfield, and I, along with Ben Haig and Bruce Summer and Chancellor Gooch, are leading the development of the UIS Downtown Innovation Center. This is going to be the university's most significant footprint in downtown since we moved to our campus on the south side of town in 1972. So this is a very exciting opportunity. We are here to build an ecosystem that provides opportunity for you. That is the point of these events, and that is the point of the UIS Downtown Innovation Center. We're planting a tree that many of us may never sit under the shade of, and we're doing it because we want to give you all opportunity and reasons to stay here in Springfield, in Sangamon County, in Central Illinois, and in Illinois. So we want to make sure that we're building what you need to be able to take advantage of to have great lives in this region. That's what this event is about. That's what the Innovation Center is about. So we're going to get going. I'm going to bring up Ben Haig the director of Innovate Springfield, and of course, we all know Ben uh, from Sangamon CEO, and we'll get started in talking with Cully. Thank you all for being here this morning. Today, we're here to listen from uh, Cully Davis. He is the vice chairman of Equity Capital Markets and the head of West Coast Technology Banking at Jefferies. He works in the San Francisco office, is a senior member of Jefferies Global Technology Investment Banking Group. He has nearly 30 years of investment banking and equity capital markets experience. He was also responsible for leading coverage efforts in the technology, media, and telecom, healthcare, business services, education, and clean technology, and renewable sectors, all of those. He also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Thailand, where he taught English and coached baseball in a rural village. Kali currently is a member of the Advisory Board Council of the National Peace Corps Association and serves on the board of the private equity exchange InvestX. He is also a trustee of the Shelby Collum Davis Charitable Fund. Kali is a Springfield native. He received his MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and MBA in English from Illinois Wesleyan University after graduating from Springfield High School. He grew up in Springfield after his late father, Professor Colum Davis, was recruited to be among the founding faculty members of Sangamon State University, which is now the University of Illinois Springfield. So without further ado, please help me welcome Colum Davis. 
Thanks, Ben. Thank you all for coming. As Ben mentioned, my father was one of the founding professors of, of Sangamon State University. It's still hard for me to call it UIS, but I will. I moved out here when I was a year and a half old back in 1969, and I still remember running around the, the mud fields of the three or four temporary buildings, which I understand are still literally there 50 plus years later. And my dad and his fellow co-founders, the focus then was to create a public affairs university and to really draw on the cross-disciplinary elements of education. And it was really a reaction at the time to academia, which was focusing on hyper-specialization. And my dad and his colleagues thought that that was not necessarily the best way to go and that a cross-disciplinary approach focused on the community was the way. And I would argue that philosophy, while it had many twists and turns along the way, it was the right choice. And I really, really appreciate the fact that there's so much work now in trying to create the next class of innovators um, and keeping them here at home. Rob asked me to speak about, you know, what's the next technology revolution, which is a tough thing to, to talk about and anticipate. But I definitely have some perspectives on that because I live literally, like I said, in the heart of Silicon Valley. So I see technology all the time. So my role there is I'm an investment banker. So I spend time with companies trying to help them position themselves, make decisions about how they grow, importantly, help them raise money. So that's my specialty is helping companies raise money. Effectively, going public is, is you know probably the most visible thing you may be aware of in terms of how I operate, is I take a lot of companies public. And ultimately, the company gets public, has a public security, and then they want to merge with people, they want to try and compete. And so my job is to effectively be a banker to companies. And in that role, I've, I've seen a lot of different technology revolutions. I've seen a lot of different strategies, and I've seen a lot of different ways that we can anticipate this next technology revolution. So the question, I think, is a bold question. Uh, I have some good news and bad news. There's an incredibly easy answer to how do we participate in the next technology revolution, and that is you create an ecosystem. And the ecosystem has multiple parts, and they all have to be fed, they all have to be nurtured, and they all have to be working together. The bad news about the answer to the question is it's really hard <laughs> to build an ecosystem, and it takes patience and time and a lot of resources. But in my short 24 hours here in Springfield these last, this last day, I've actually been blown away at the progress that's already been made and the commitment that's already here. So I think you'll, you'll hear at the end of my remarks that you guys are well on your way. I mentioned this ecosystem, so I thought no self-respecting son of an American historian would be worth his salt if he didn't actually reflect a little bit on history around how do ecosystems get built. And so naturally, because I come from Silicon Valley, I thought it'd be helpful for you to just understand how did that environment create an ecosystem that has arguably been among the most successful technology ecosystems on the planet. There are really five important elements of an ecosystem as it relates to kind of technology development. Academia, government, capital, which is cash, you know, investments, an advisor network, and entrepreneurs. None of this matters if, if there aren't entrepreneurs willing to, to make bets and, and come up with ideas. And so if I could reflect on those five elements of an ecosystem around how Silicon Valley navigated, I think we'll learn a lot of lessons that can be applied here. So the term Silicon Valley was actually coined in 1971, but the, the creation of, of what is the Silicon Valley aura started long before that. And it's going to go back to 1891 when Leland Stanford, who was a railroad magnate, was going west, laying railroad tracks effectively got to the Pacific Ocean, couldn't put any more railroad tracks down, so settled down in the area right between San Francisco and, and San Jose, California, and decided, given there was no more space to build a railroad, that he would build a university. And so that was how Stanford University was born. 
More importantly, about 20 years later, the then president of Stanford, who was trying to help build a university, much like my father, probably 10 or 20 years in building SSU, was trying to understand how do we kind of make this university relevant? How do we engage with the community? And they made one really, really important decision. In 1909, Stanford president took Stanford dollars and invested in a company, invested in an idea. It was called an audience tube. An audience tube probably means nothing to any of us, but it was effectively a, a vacuum tube that amplified electronic signals that turned out to be really, really helpful in the invention of the telephone and radio. So the ability to transmit information through this vacuum tube, amplifying signals allowed us effectively to create a modern technology age in terms of how to communicate. And it was interesting that the university took steps to invest in that product because they were starting this engineering program there and it was kind of taking off. And they thought, if we start to invest in local, local products and start to give some of our students a chance to engage in this environment, we will have uh, an environment and an ecosystem that can build on itself. So you fast forward now to the 40s and 50s. So Stanford's chugging along. They've actually got a really impressive engineering program. And the dean of the engineering school at the time, Dean Terman, Fred Terman, looked at all these smart graduates that were leaving Stanford after having spent time in their classrooms and they were scattering to the winds. They were going all over the place. They were well-educated, they were coming from a very well-regarded school, but they were just going all over the place. So Fred Terman said, it'd be great if we could actually concentrate this talent that we spend so much time nurturing, keep them local. And you do that by convincing Stanford to start investing in physical spaces around the campus, building research parks, buildings, trying to help support companies by making investments, trying to draw companies into the environment so that the students could literally walk out of the classroom upon graduation and go across the street into a company and help deploy some of the resources that they learned together and try and amplify the benefit of that education. Hewlett Packard is a famous example of the early beneficiary of this strategy. I think everyone's heard of HP. One of the early, early technology companies was born out of that entire kind of ecosystem and that whole philosophy. Fast forward to the 50s and 60s now, we had a thriving academic environment. We had a lot of business parks and businesses being created around Stanford. And we had the long arm of the government play an incredibly important and pivotal role into the development of technology. Got a little lucky because it also happened to be the end of World War II and the beginning of the space race and ultimately the beginning of the Cold War. So there were a lot of Department of Defense and NASA engagements in the area. And we were seeing a massive amount of government funding to support really innovative technology development at these companies that had been created on the footsteps and doorsteps of Stanford. So people like NASA had aeronautical engineering needs. You know, rockets wouldn't have gone to space without some of these technology advancements from Stanford. DARPA, has anyone heard of DARPA? So DARPA, was effectively a government agency focused on defense matters. At one point, DARPA was funding 70% of computer science research. DARPA, as you probably know, those who know DARPA, effectively invented the internet. Actually, it wasn't Al Gore, it was DARPA. And so DARPA created these nodes, right, between UCLA and Stanford, was the first two nodes, to begin the modern day internet. Does anyone know what node number 12 was? SSU was node number 12. I thought it was the University of Illinois Champaign. But close enough, it's very close to the system. So that invention of the internet was not that far from here in those early, early days. But DARPA, NASA, the Department of Defense were really creating a massive amount of investment in the area. But probably the most significant contribution happened in the 1960s and 70s. And it was really the, the kind of proliferation of semiconductors. Semiconductor chips 
born out of that environment have, have created massive, massive contributions to, to how we operate. Everything, almost anything electronic in this room has probably got some kind of chip. Certainly the phones in your pockets are massive, massive, you know, microcomputers um, held in your own pocket thanks to the development of semiconductor chips. But a lot of that government investment went into that. There's a famous semiconductor inventor at the time, a person named Gordon Moore, who many people may not have heard of Gordon Moore, but you probably have heard of Moore's Law. Moore's Law was a philosophy embedded back in 1965 that did become law that suggested on the single piece of real estate of a semiconductor chip, the number of transistors, which are effectively the engines of of information movement on a chip would double every year. So this was a philosophy in 1965 around how computers would innovate and become smarter and faster. So imagine that. It's the power of compounding, right? There used to be computers that fit in this room that would take hours to do simple, simple calculations. Meanwhile, every single person's cell phone you know, would run circles around that. And of course, with innovation and with business development comes capital. So I've talked about academia, I've talked about government, now we're at capital, we're at the third element of this ecosystem. Capital is critical, and the venture capital community was really born in 1972 in Silicon Valley through uh, Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia, two very famous uh, venture capitalists. And their job is basically to make bets. They bet on people, they bet on ideas, and they give the early, early funding for these ideas. What's crazy about venture capital that, that people that aren't in the industry always find super confusing is nine times out of 10, a venture capital investment literally doesn't work out. Goes to zero, fails. The good news is, you know, one times out of 10, it's usually a huge home run. And that's the model. You, you fail a lot and hopefully you pick winners and you have a good diversity of ideas that a couple turn out and do really well. WhatsApp is probably the best example for our friends at Sequoia. They famously invested up to $60 million over three years in WhatsApp. So the only venture capital firm to invest in that app. Facebook, after three years, bought that for a little over $20 billion. And Sequoia owned about 15 or 20% of it. So Sequoia walked away with almost $4 billion after three years of putting $60 million at risk. So you can fail a lot if that is one of the positive outcomes. And that's how venture capital works. You invest in a bunch of ideas, some of them work out, the ones that work out, you triple, double down, and you use the profits from that to find the next nine or 10 that, that uh, hopefully some of them will work. And with the advent of venture capital comes the advisor network. So we're on to number four now of the, of the ecosystem. That's what I am. I am an investment banker. So I'm part of that advisory network that comes in and helps companies think through how do we manage our business? How do we grow? How do we raise money? There's a whole bunch of legal advisors who come in and help with company formation, with protecting intellectual property, with helping merge companies. There are entire networks of um, public relations people. You've got to kind of build a business and then tell people about it. There's an entire network of journalists that are critical, particularly in Silicon Valley. Everyone in Silicon Valley thinks they're smarter than everybody else, right? And they always talk up a big game about what they do. It's really helpful to have a spotlight on folks sometimes when they're not telling the truth. Elizabeth Holmes is a perfect example from Theranos. Sam Bankman fried is a great example of that with FTX, you know, getting convicted for lying on a $40 billion fraud who, ironically, his two parents are Stanford law professors. So imagine that. So even when you grow up amongst lawyers, you can break the law. And so we need the journalistic efforts to kind of keep people on the rails. And then you can hopefully kind of visualize this network, this kind of thriving 
network and, and flywheel of how academia and government and capital and this advisor network that gets drawn to it all becomes really, really important in kind of creating this virtuous cycle of support. And you need that support in that ecosystem to help grow. Now, the good news is you don't need to be in Silicon Valley to have a successful ecosystem. There are lots of examples of much smaller markets having it, and they often have one or two really important elements of that ecosystem that drive the engagement. Seattle's a great example, right? Seattle is a kind of a microcosm of Silicon Valley in terms of the ecosystem. Two big companies there, Microsoft and Amazon, wildly successful. Guess what happens when you have wildly successful companies? You get senior people there that don't like working for big companies generally have made a lot of wealth or, and, and, and have the freedom to kind of go pursue something that is of interest, a passion of theirs. And so we see these networks in Seattle peeling away from the big, big companies and creating venture capital, creating a board or advisory network, starting businesses themselves, helping mentor younger entrepreneurs to help avoid the mistakes that they observed over time in building Amazon, as an example. So Seattle's become this great ecosystem, principally because of that kind of flywheel of the network. Another good example is Utah. They've cleverly coined their environment Silicon Slopes, because Utah is a beautiful state. For those of you who've never been, it's gorgeous. There are two elements of their uh, success. One, government, so local government, went to California businesses and said, listen, we'll let you relocate here. We have tax breaks, we have incentives, we have a fairly cheap cost of living, we have a beautiful environment to, to work and live in, so try and draw companies in. So companies did draw in. Utah also had a really interesting element around the society and around the populace that was really unique. There are a lot of Mormons in Salt Lake City, in, in Utah. Mormons often go on a mission, and the mission is effectively to leave your home and go to a foreign land and try and convince people that your religion is interesting. So talk about knocking on doors and being rejected over and over and over again and finding a way to compel people to listen, to try and tell an interesting story and to just get back up every time you're told I'm not interested. That, that is a perfect sales and marketing classroom. And so a lot of companies that had a sales and marketing element to it found the populace, a young, eager, engaged, highly productive workforce in Utah because of that unique element of their society. And it helped create a really, really thriving ecosystem. So a lot of different things can create that ecosystem. And you don't have to be as big as Silicon Valley to be successful. Keep listening to hear more from Cully Davis on Community Voices. Thanks for joining us today on Community Voices on NPR Illinois. I'm Vanessa Ferguson. Today, we are listening back to the public event titled The Next Technology Revolution. The event featured Cully Davis, a Springfield native and the vice chairman for equity private markets at Jeffrey's Global Technology Investment Banking Group. 
At this event, Davis shared his nearly 30 years experience in investment banking and working with technology companies like Groupon, Lyft, Box, Kite Pharma, MicroStrategy, SunPower, and Google, to name a few. Davis has an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He has a bachelor's degree in English from Illinois Wesleyan University, and he's a graduate of Springfield High School. He is also the son of the late Professor Colum Davis, a founding faculty member of Sagamon State University. Let's continue to listen to Cully Davis as he shares lessons he's learned in Silicon Valley and the elements needed to make Springfield the home of the next technology revolution. Here's Cully Davis. I haven't yet talked about the entrepreneur, which is honestly the most important piece of the puzzle. And because I've been in Silicon Valley for a long time, I've had the chance to work with a lot of them. And some of them are fascinating. Some of them are super annoying. None of them are as smart as they often think they are, but they are still pretty impressive people. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of entrepreneurs I've worked with, because I think the character traits that they represent are really instructive as to how successful entrepreneurs navigate and how they think about the world. So I moved to California in 2004. I was, I was hired by a bank that had the privilege of taking Google public. So it was really one of my first IPOs in 2004. And so Larry and Sergey, the two founders, incredibly bright, incredibly curious individuals. But what was really interesting about those two is they had what I call a North Star focus. So they had a strategy about the business, but they had a North Star philosophy about life and about their reason for being that drove everything they did. And in a nutshell, it was to democratize access to information for everyone. So the, the idea was we wanted to provide information to anyone and everyone. We all use Google as a verb now, right? So we understand the impact of that North Star focus. But for them, it wasn't about just the business model. It literally drove their life decisions. And so when they hired me and my partners and our friends at another bank to take them public, they said, most IPOs, are marketed to a very small set of very large institutional investors, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, BlackRock. And it's a behind closed doors process. People in the audience don't often get access. You certainly don't get access at the IPO price. You have to chase it in the aftermarket. The Google founder said, listen, our North Star is democratizing access. And if that's the case for information, it should be the case for how we go public. And so they challenged us to create a Dutch auction, effectively, to go out and allow anyone and everyone who had money, who had a desire to own their stock, to have equal access. So the grandmother in Topeka had the same exact access as the most important fund manager, Will Danoff, at Fidelity in Boston. And they equalized that access. They didn't have to. The IPO was going to be successful regardless. But it was a North Star focus for them that defined how they thought. And staying true to that North Star literally helped inform every decision they made. So having a real point of view about what your North Star is helps you, you know, maintain consistency and I think was a big, big reason for their success. Another example that I think is important that I've seen is the willingness to bet on oneself. And sometimes that gets people into trouble, <laughs> but having conviction in your own thoughts and ideas is really important. There's an individual named TJ Rogers, who is the CEO of Cypress Semiconductor for 35 years. He actually lives around the corner from me. I run by his house when I go on runs. He may be the only person in Silicon Valley who likes the Packers. He has this Packers 
flag in his backyard. And incredibly intelligent individual, lots of patents, very successful at Cyprus. He had an interest about 10, 15, probably more like 20 years ago in solar energy. It's a popular topic in California because our energy costs are really high and we have nothing but sunlight all day long, all the time. And so his perspective was, I'd like to learn a little, a little bit more about solar panels. As it turns out, solar panels are manufactured in a very similar way to semiconductor chips. It's more or less the same thing. And instead of putting a transistor on a chip, you're putting sensors on a panel of silicon and, and harnessing the sun rays and turning it into energy. But it's very similar. And TJ thought, well, I know the semiconductor industry. I can probably improve upon this business. So he went out and met a bunch of companies, including a company called SunPower, which was an interesting, innovative company that was running out of money really fast. And he met them, tried to help them raise money, running out of time, literally not making payroll. And he had so much conviction in the product and in his ability to influence their success that he wrote a check for $750,000 out of his personal checking account to keep the company alive, make payroll, to get organized. He helped them then with the, with the benefit of time and a little bit of, of cash in the bank to then reformulate their strategy, raise money. He hired me and my partners to take them public. So I took SunPower public, which was kind of a spinoff out of Cypress Semiconductor. And at one point, SunPower, which was a side project funded by his checking account, had a larger market capitalization than Cyprus, which is a business he ran for 35 years very successfully. So that ability to bet on himself, to understand the opportunity and literally write his own check allowed him to create a really cool company that actually was more valuable than the very one that was kind of his day job. Another good example is a, just an endless tenacity. So I had the privilege of taking Lyft public, which is a ride-sharing business. The two founders there, John and Logan, really, really good individuals, but they had a million challenges. First off, ride sharing back in the day, trying to convince, it's a marketplace model, right? So you have two pieces of that model have to both work together for it to be successful. So you have to convince people that it's okay to press a button on your phone and have a stranger pick you up in their personal car and take you somewhere. That took a little while to kind of change consumer behavior. And at the same time, equal measure, because the marketplaces only work if both parts of the market are working, you had to convince people who were sitting on the couch with a car in the driveway that, hey, you could better time spent in the car picking up strangers and taking them where they want to go. So convince changing consumer behavior is really hard. And oh, by the way, they did that while a massively better funded, massively aggressive company in Uber and Travis Kalanalnik was chasing them down and literally trying to crush them. So doing that, changing consumer behavior, when you've got a better funded competitor who is the most ruthless competitor I've ever met trying to take your company down. And oh, by the way, doing that while you're having to create a business model in a micro format in every different community where the rules are different, where the city council has different points of view about what's legal and not, where you've got a taxi council and a taxi lobbying effort that's going after you and having to do that a thousand times in different cities to try and create a business model. Those two had a million reasons to give up. There were a million reasons every day to give up and they literally never gave up because they had a vision for what they wanted to do and they had an, an endless amount of tenacity and, and ability to kind of absorb body blows. And as a result, they kind of powered through and became successful. And then my last example, everyone's favorite, Elon Musk. So I happen to work on his least well-known business. So I, 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 uh, 
I peripherally worked on a few of the others, but the one I had a principal role in, another solo company called Solar City that his cousins actually ran. But Elon was on the board and was a loud voice on that board. And there was a moment we took that company public. And at this point, there, there frankly, there were too many solar companies. So they started to struggle. There were technical issues in how the stock was trading. They needed money and it wasn't easy for us to raise the money. And so me and my other banking advisors on the deal were being asked by the board, you got to go raise a convertible offering, which is kind of a hybrid debt and equity instrument. And the technicals of the stock price and how they traded made that almost impossible. So we had to look the board, including Elon in the face and say, we can't do that. The lack of comprehension Elon Musk had about the word no was awe-inspiring. <laughs> he wasn't arguing, he wasn't angry. He understood the letters N-O together mean no, but he was unwilling to accept that to the point of being incomprehensible and you know, made for some awkward conversations, <laughs> but we eventually had to find a way to kind of navigate and twist and turn and kind of get into a pretzel around how do we achieve his objective. And to his credit, we figured out a way. It was not pretty, it was not efficient, but we got it done. And so the ability to where no just is not a word that is acceptable. And I think we've all seen that in you know, his long, long history of, of successes. Probably not a lot of fun to be around, but, but certainly really, really effective at building successful businesses. So what does all of this mean for Innovate Springfield and the next technology revolution? Hopefully you by now see you know, technology is massively influential. It's massively changing how we operate in society. And the speed to which innovation is happening and impacting us is accelerating. I'm no better than anyone in this room trying to anticipate what the next technology revolution will be. But I'm quite certain that if you have an ecosystem in place that's healthy and ready to, to, to engage, that you'll be able to not only deal with technology as it, as it comes, but you'll begin to be able to anticipate what that technology is over time. So if we reflect a l real quickly on the five elements of an ecosystem that I've reflected around Stanford and how it relates to what I've observed here, I think the future is super bright. And I've literally just been here for 24 hours. I've met a number of people. It's been a lot of fun. And the focus and the benefit of the efforts here are impressive. So first, academia. The Illinois Innovation Network, which is a blend of government and now academia, is really, really impressive. The fact that you've got these hubs that are created, that are working together, you know, in the spirit of my father's notion of this cross-disciplinary approach, helping each other out, helping elevate everyone, and ensuring that you've got support from the university is really, really important. And listen, it's, it's, it's important that the academic institutions try and keep people here. You know, there are a long list of entrepreneurs, particularly at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, that but for their ability to stay locally would have made this local environment a lot more successful around technology a lot sooner. Folks like Larry Ellison, was at U of I. He moved to California because the ecosystem was there. Max Levchin, one of the founders of PayPal, along with Elon and, and Peter Thiel, was at U of I, Champaign, moved to the ecosystem of Silicon Valley. Martin Eberhardt, one of the two engineers that founded Tesla. The other one, Mark Tarpening, is literally my neighbor. His daughter and my daughter went to school together. So Martin and Mark invented Tesla. Elon didn't invent Tesla. He just took it over and did a good job commercializing the, the cars. But it was Martin and Mark who actually invented it. Martin was a U of I student in Champaign. Steve Chan and Jaweed Kareem founded YouTube. Jeremy Stoppelman, if you ever used Yelp, founded Yelp. These are all U of I grads that went to Silicon Valley because the ecosystem there was much more developed. So 
I'd love to challenge everyone in this room, including academia, to make sure that you give the graduates of our esteemed academic institutions reasons to stay. Give them a place to engage. Give them the concentration of the talent and the ability for them to build businesses here to allow for that brain drain to not exist. Smart people will go to where the ecosystem is, and if we build the ecosystem here, they'll stick around. Government support, we talked about the Illinois Innovation Network, is really, really impressive. I think the biggest challenge with government is to just give them reasons to keep funding. Talk about the successes you've had. Illuminate this event. Illuminate the, the Sangamon CEO actions. Make sure, and I, my understanding is this hub of that network is amongst the most advanced and the most, certainly has the biggest breadth in terms of including even high school students in this whole network. So keep that up. Nurture it. Fund it. And don't be shy about letting people know in positions of power in the government how important that is. Capital, which is the third part, that's always the hardest, but I'm kind of blown away by the extent of the angel networks that are already existing here. So I met Paul and Nancy, who I believe are in the room, part of the Illini Angels and the Illinois Ventures Group, you know, an incredible organization that is really focused and has kind of a built-in advantage around the UI system to help support entrepreneurs. That capital is rare, so please take advantage of it. You've got locals like Larry Sweat, who's somewhere in the audience, who I've understood is, is also incredibly impactful in terms of that. And Bruce, you know, I, I, Bruce and I were just a year or two apart in, in high school here, and I frankly went to the same college, <laughs> and I you know, finally got to know him here recently. But you have local people here who have a ton of talent, a ton of industry background, and a desire to help support this burgeoning community. So take advantage of those resources and celebrate them. The advisor network as well is really important. And I think the one thing, you know, me yapping about Silicon Valley is interesting, but you know, we don't we don't have to be Silicon Valley here, right? You can you can be very successful without that kind of exposure. And the good news is you have literally thousands of entrepreneurs that have built businesses right outside of these doors who've been incredibly successful. Building a small business versus building Google. There are a lot of similar elements, right? One may be a bigger market, one may be a bigger company over time, but the lessons are the same. So rely on those networks, rely on, on the learnings of people who have been there before, been there, done that, to advise the younger generation. And that's why I think it's so important that you've got the high school kids as part of this environment, because you're creating this embedded uh, ecosystem and this embedded comfort around relying on folks that have been there to learn. And that's how we all I think can help build this ecosystem. And then finally, the, the entrepreneur set. The beautiful thing about the ecosystem strategy is once you get that right, the entre entrepreneurs really begin to thrive. And entrepreneurs need a place where they feel comfort around building something. They need access to capital. They need access to boards and mentors, but they need an environment where they can really build something. And here's where I think you have a massive secret weapon that many of you, particularly if you've never really left Central Illinois, you probably don't appreciate nearly as much as I do. It took me living outside of this area for 30 years, and in particular being in Silicon Valley for the last 20 years, to understand the value of the Midwestern ethos. When you wake up, having been born or grown up in this environment, you wake up with a certain humility, you wake up with a certain sense that no one really owes you much and that you've got to put in an honest day's work. You wake up helping each other out, not trying to tear each other down. And you wake up understanding that the collective group benefits when everyone's brought up and built up. Silicon Valley is almost none of that. Everyone's smarter than everyone else. Everyone wants to tear each other down. Nobody thinks any bad decision was ever their fault. 
and then any, any stroke of luck that was gained was because they're all genius. And that catches up to you, right? I talked about Elizabeth Holmes. I talked about Sam Bankman fried Now granted, not everyone goes to jail, but that Midwestern ethos is a secret weapon. It's a, it's a superpower that you have that I think will actually help benefit the community. And, and, and if you have that power and you have that kind of sense of humility about what you're building, and you've got all the support that I've already observed here in the community, I'm highly, highly confident that you guys will be really successful building that ecosystem. Thank you very much, Kelly. Let's have a round of applause. Keep listening to hear more from Cully Davis on Community Voices on NPR Illinois. for listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. I'm your host today, Vanessa Ferguson. Last year, UIS Innovate Springfield and the Community Foundation for the Land of Lincoln hosted a public event titled The Next Technology Revolution, which featured Springfield native and vice chairman for equity private markets at Jeffrey's Global Technology Investment Banking Group, Cully Davis. We've just heard Cully Davis share his experience helping take companies like Google public and how Springfield can replicate the success of Silicon Valley. Now you'll hear me ask him a few further questions about his experience and what advice he has for business students and business owners. Here's my sit down with Cully Davis. Well, thank you. You made my job so easy. You told so many great stories. I don't even have to ask half the questions I have now. But, you know, you've done such a great job for us today of really highlighting those facets of our community that we're doing well and the areas that we can improve on. But is there any specific, can we get into a little more detail about anything we're missing, any little piece of the puzzle that can give us that extra a leg up to compete with other cities who may be wanting to do the same thing that uh, we're hoping to do here. I think what, what you probably need to do is celebrate the small victories more visibly. Everybody knows this is hard. Silicon Valley is the best at, at celebrating failures. And so, you know, let's, let's take the small victories amplify them, help the community understand what it is you're doing. Because this is a, you know, this is a journey of trying to create understanding, trying to create some support. And again, you don't need to go from zero to 60 overnight. So, you know, the small victories, the small elements of success here, I think you need to talk about more. Yeah. One of the great things that we have on our show Community Voices on NPR Illinois is we get to talk to local business owners and people who are trying to do really exciting things in the community. And But one of the things I find is that sometimes we miss that 
storytelling aspect that you were talking about earlier with the Sangman CEOs. And since you, I was so excited to hear you're an English major. Okay, arts and culture person here. Yes, we relate. So can you kind of talk to our audience about how to tell that story? It's easy to say tell the story, but how do you really convey that to people who don't know your business, don't know your area of expertise? Sure, yeah. So my business in particular, so I, I, when I take a company public, I'm trying to tell a story about the company that balances two really important things. I'm trying to tell and be authentic and honest about what the company is today. But what really attracts capital, what attracts the money, is being able to, to translate what is happening today with a vision that's much bigger. So, and that's a hard balance. And, and when you get this wrong, you get people talking about, hey, in 10 years, I'm gonna do this and that, and I haven't really proven I can do anything today. So you try, it's a, an important balance of kind of, you know, showing people the, the, the runway or the ramp to where you're going. And you do that through examples. Frankly, you, you, the most effective way is to, to have your customers tell the story for you. Mm-hmm. It's one thing for me or a CEO to tell someone how interesting their product is. Have your customers talk about it. We do that often in a prospectus for an IPO is a, is a legal document. There's a lot of boring stuff in it. But some of the most compelling parts of it is when I get a customer or two or five to talk about why does this product resonate with me? Why do we use it? Why do we need it? Why is it necessary for us to succeed? And so letting others talk about you is no different than life, right? You know, it's, it's, it's way easier for me to talk about my brother Mark and how cool he is than for him to tell people about it, right? So yeah. when you have others tell your story, right. it is much more compelling. Yeah. So another thing I have to ask you about, um, because I am guilty of this, I think sometimes uh, as I've talked to people in the community and and business leaders, they're maybe a little unsure, there's some hesitancy about embracing that new technology that you're seeing with businesses. I know some of us are not quite ready to embrace chat GPT. (laughs) We think it's watching us. I don't know. But can you talk to us about how we can better integrate new technology into what we do to help us be more efficient and not be so fearful of it. Yeah, I honestly don't have a good answer for this. I am, I am. Some, I wake up sometimes fearful of this dystopian world of technology taking over as much as you all do, and I live in the middle of it. I, maybe I, I, I sense it more viscerally even. Uh, so, you know, I, I am blessed to be in a community where there's a lot of innovation and a lot of a lot of opportunity for me to earn a living and a lot of kind of interesting things that come. But I'm also the first to admit that technology can be terrifying and it's certainly not all used for good. And so, you know, I don't have a great answer other than I think educating yourself, keeping a, a watchful eye on the impact. Uh, and I think we need to rely on honestly the government a lot to help us understand. And I think if, we're, if there's one interesting lesson that's evolving from artificial intelligence, which is kind of the, the buzzword of, you know, we kind of joke out in California, there's a buzzword every year. So this year's buzzword is artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. There will be another one next year. I can't tell you what it is. Uh, probably quantum computing or something like that, but there'll be, there'll be a buzzword next year. Artificial intelligence, it's terrifying, and it can be used for great things, but it could be abused as well. And so I think having the government get involved a little bit earlier to try and at least put some guardrails. But we as a society have to kind of figure out how do we use this. Uh, yeah, but and earlier you were talking about consumer behavior, and I think what may have happened there is that the more we see it working effectively, 
the more comfortable we get with it. And you've said in an interview uh, not that long ago that you can see a world where AI is part of our everyday life. So can you kind of ease us into what that might look like so that we won't be so terrified when it happens? Sure, yeah, I mean, there, there are literally a million examples. We're sitting in a hospital complex. So let's think about healthcare. Imagine, you know, we all go to our annual physical or we have, you know, I just, I just tore my ACL playing soccer. So I had an ACL surgery a few months ago. The process by which we heal ourselves or go to the doctor, a lot of it's rote, right? There's a lot of just process steps and there are little signals that happen when you kind of tell a doctor, oh, this is hurting or I, I have this kind of cholesterol outcome. Those are all little signals. The, the technical accumulation of the data can be really, really instructive. And as a matter of fact, we can harness that data to start creating much, much stronger signals for what may be happening that now depends on a doctor's ability to pay attention when they've got a massively busy schedule and may miss something, or there may be something unique to your background, your history, your age, your dietary, you know, all the elements. If we could incorporate all that data and help, you know, create a decisioning tool that alerts the doctor, hey, when this happened, when these four things happen in this sequence, for someone of this age who lived in this environment, these are more important than the average. So I think there's lots of ways where you can actually harness that kind of automated decisioning tool to let people be smarter. What, what you didn't hear me say is not have the doctor in the room, right? That's not, that's not the right, answer. Right. But I think you can help people get a lot smarter and, 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 and infer things that they don't naturally always think of. Um, and so I think there are lots of examples like that where AI can be used to massive benefit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I certainly hope that encourages um, some of the people in the audience today to start thinking about how they can be more innovative. I think that's one of the goals of having uh, discussions like this is to start thinking internally, well, how, what changes can I make? Now, I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about your time here in Springfield because, you know, we have a lot of young people in the audience and, and they may be thinking, wow, like I'm from Springfield. How, how could I go out and, and make a, a huge career for myself. So what was it about growing up in Springfield that, that gave you that extra leg up? Or, or did you have any disadvantages of being in Springfield? Uh, I grew up super privileged, right? I had a, my dad had a great job. I had every advantage known to man. So I, I, you know, I have no, I have no challenges. I was a normal kid. So we all, you know, not every day is a happy day, but you know, what was interesting about Springfield, I actually hearkened this a lot back to my dad. My dad strongly encouraged me to, to pursue a liberal arts education. He said, you may like finance, you know, 20 years from now you may hate it, who knows, but math is math. You can figure that out. Being able to think critically, being able to communicate, being able to understand kind of how humanity <laughs> engages with each other, far more important. And so uh, to his credit, he, he convinced me to pursue a, a liberal arts education, which I think then gave me the tools to kind of do whatever I wanted. It just so happened I did have a pretty strong point of view that I liked finance. I then went to business school to get a degree, and I've been lucky that for 30 years I've kind of enjoyed what I've done for a living, and it's kind of well-suited to my personality. But the good news is I got a good education in the local community that would allow me to pivot and do something completely different if I wake up one day and get tired of the dystopian Silicon Valley that I, that I live in. <laughs> right. So just one final question for you before we start to wrap up and go to questions from the audience. 
Because we have young people here, Simon CEO program. This is just, you even said yourself, this is such a, a great program. I haven't seen anything truly like it in, in other communities, which is awesome. But what other resources or tools uh, can our young people or even our business owners um, take advantage of that maybe you don't see communities like ours taking advantage of to really give us that confidence in making those kind of business decisions and being in those business environments? Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, but I honestly, I, I see it within the Sangamon CEO group, right? They, every I get the email of the people that they meet with. It's a lot of local business owners who have done incredible things. And the, again, you don't have to have a big, you don't, you don't have to have a big business to have relevant advice and to be able to provide counsel. And so I, I see that through and through. And 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 building a business that's a service business is no less or more interesting than building a semiconductor business, right? It's just, it's, it's, it all has the same challenges and you all learn a lot by engaging in the people that have to make those decisions. So I would just encourage the network to continue to be strong. You know, perhaps there are things you can do around more kind of a concerted effort around internships or maybe there's kind of a, you know, a, a couple months kind of embedded within a company to help see the inner workings of a company. But listen, you're, you're a lot smarter about that than I am. You, you know the community. I'm, I'm, I'm an interloper here. It's been 40 years since I lived here, so I'd, right. you, you're probably better at, at knowing that than I am. Well, I, you know, just speaking as an MBA student, and you were an MBA student as well, you know, looking for those extra opportunities to expand on what you learn in the classroom. And sometimes in the classroom, it's like you're just trying to get through the homework, but it's really can be more tangible learning. Uh, so it sounds like you're maybe saying to our Sangman CEO students, <laughs> look for internships. It's yeah. There's no uh, nothing better than sitting and observing how the world works. Yeah. Studying is critical, it gives you the framework, but until you're live and in person and dealing with issues day to day, um, that's a great education. So yeah. I would encourage anyone and everyone to do that if you can. Thanks for listening to Community Voices. To learn more about the show, visit nprillinois.org. Suggest a guest. Email communityvoices at nprillinois.org and we'll explore interviewing them. <laughs>